0: So Jesus is there casting the money changers out of the temple. We know from other gospel writings that he says this is because the house of prayer has been turned into a den of thieves. The money changers have figured out how to make religion lucrative from themselves. And taking a page out of the Old Testament, words that they knew God hated, but which they did not believe God hated, they began to use false scales false measurements. That is, the leadership of the people were untruthful and trying to gain from the people who they ruled over. Meanwhile, the house of prayer, the place of sanctuary and refuge had been taken away from them. Jesus quotes, excuse me, not Jesus. The disciples remember a quotation about Jesus from the Old Testament when they see this happening. They remember that God had said, zeal for his house will consume him. And again, that is the major point I want you to take away today from the story of Jonah. That zeal for humanity as the temple in which God wants to dwell and now does dwell as the body of the risen man Jesus Christ has consumed him. So much so that he entered into our midst, was willing to take our sin upon himself, die and then rise again for our salvation. He is risen. risen. Hallelujah. So I mentioned before that this happens because they are asking him for a sign. Why do you do these things? By what right, Jesus, do you claim that you're God? And he says, the sign I'll give you is if you destroy my body. They didn't understand it, but that's what he was saying. If you destroy my body, it won't stay destroyed. Now I want us to look at another place in the Bible where a similar question is asked of him and the same answer is given, but in a little bit different way. This is Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. If you grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you, you can find this on page 976. Page 976, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. There it says, it begins, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, those are enemies, by the way, came and to test him, that's Jesus, they asked him to show a sign from heaven. Now, if you just scroll up a little bit, Pew Bible, you'll see at verse 32 of the previous chapter, right above that, what's it say? It says, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. He had just given them a sign from heaven. A sign of turning a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish into plenteous food. But that wasn't enough. Show us another sign, Jesus. Be greater than Moses, Jesus, they say. Verses two and three are the first part of his answer. It's a little clunky the way it reads in English. He says, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In short, what he means is you can tell how the weather is, but you don't know when God is standing in the flesh talking to you. In short, but now why are we here? Verse four, an evil An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, we're going to go pretty fast past that evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign thing. But it's a fairly fair warning that if you're wanting God to prove to you that he exists, you're already done. And he has no requirement that he has to do that. I've heard atheists say, if he will just show himself to me, I'll believe. The fact is, no, you won't. You'll want more and more. If you do not believe because of what he says, you will not believe any sign, especially then that one sign that is set for all time, this sign of Jonah. Now, when Jesus mentions the sign of Jonah in the other synoptic gospels, he'll add another interpretation to it. He'll say this, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so also the son of man, that's him, will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. All right. There's our connection to the book of Jonah. And we're going to spend a good amount of time in there. It begins on page 920 in your pew Bible, if you want to turn there. And before we get into the question of the big fish and was it real and how is it possible and wah, 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 I don't like miracles, let's just look at the story. Because it's quite a story. I mean, it really is a good tale. Hmm. Chapter 1, someone got the pun there. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Although I lie there a little bit, it's not the first time. Jonah has showed up in the Bible before this as a prophet set to one of the kings in order to call them to repentance. That was much earlier in his life. He's probably an older man by this time. In any case, the word of the Lord, the word of Jesus, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Why? 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 I remember in Sunday school, I remember it vividly being taught because he was afraid. And so we shouldn't be like Jonah and be afraid of speaking God's word. That's a lie. It's true. You shouldn't be afraid of speaking God's word, but that's not why he flees. We'll come back to this. I want to let it hang there for a while. Why does he flee? Now, watch when he flees, what happens? He's going to go down. He's going to go down. He's going to go down, and that's all before he gets thrown down into the water. Here we go. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, again, this one's gonna go real fast, but there was a time when Jesus was asleep in a boat and some people woke him up and said, what are you doing asleep? We're all gonna die, you remember that? It's amazing how much of the Old Testament Jesus comes along, he doesn't do what they did, he does what they did better. He does it fully and truly. He fulfills it for us. Even so, verse 7, And they said to one another, this is the sailors, Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. I don't think this was a surprise to Jonah, but it is kind of a neat little horror story. Here you are in a raging wind. Here are these pagans who worship false gods, working their pagan magic to try to figure out how to placate the gods of sea and earth. And what happens? They all figure out it's you. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? (laughs) Prophet. Where do you come from? Jerusalem. What is your country? That of the true God? God. And what people are you? A Hebrew. He's going to say that in verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh. That's Jesus Christ, before he came in the flesh. Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, in verse 10, notice how faithful the pagans are. They believe. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The remaining verses up to verse 16 will show how faithful they are. Because when he says to them, what you must do is throw me into the sea. You must murder me. They say, no way. We don't want to put innocent blood on our own heads. He says, I'm not innocent. Throw me into the sea. They throw him into the sea. The sea then calms down. And what happens next? They make vows to Jesus. They decide he's the true God and vow to follow him the rest of their lives. Through this insanity of Jonah, God converts these sailors. It's a beautiful part of the story goes by very quickly. But then now look at verse 17. He's been thrown down into the sea, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So this brings us back to Jesus standing with the Pharisees, right? What sign do you give us to prove that you're the Messiah? What sign do you give us to prove that you're the one who says you're God? And he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. The problem, of course, is, I already used the language that sounds this way, very few people today believe that Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. There have been skeptics questioning this for hundreds of years, and the most blasphemous thing of all is that it has been pioneered and led by Christian preachers, or at least men who claim to be Christian preachers, but who want to believe we do not need to believe all of the Bible. Or that we can say, well, that part of the Bible, it's just a story. It's just a metaphor. It didn't really happen. But here's the problem. If Jesus says that the only sign, The only sign is going to be that just as it did happen to Jonah, it will happen to him, and it didn't actually happen to Jonah. Well, then how can we ever believe it happened to him? How can you ever believe that he actually died in rose? And that is the problem. And that also is the reason that you should believe it did happen to Jonah. Now, I know if you're a good, pious Christian, and you've run into this argument before, you've gone and searched it out. And you probably know there are these big sharks, giant sharks that can actually swallow a man and have him survive. You may have even found that news story from the last 10 years where some guy in the Philippines, I think it was, I can't remember, but some guy over in Asia actually got swallowed by a fish for a couple days and came out alive again. He wasn't doing very well, but he came out alive again. They caught the fish. He was inside the belly. Okay, fine. I, that's fine. If you want to do that to ease your conscience, okay. But I think that when you go that route, When someone says the Bible couldn't be true on this point and you run off and you search the news to try to prove the Bible, you are playing on the wrong field. You've already given the other team the ball and you're on defense. When Christianity is always about offense, both going on offense and if you have to, scandalizing people by the offense. In fact, you who know football, basketball, or otherwise, if you don't scandalize the other team, you're not going to win. You have to go on offense. So let's go on offense. Why should you believe the fish story? Because Jesus Christ believed the fish story. And Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen. Hallelujah. If you need to test something in the Bible, test the one sign he says to test, which is his resurrection. I'll point you to the resources after church if you want. You can go and study the history of it if you want. There are three arguments brought up against the resurrection of Jesus. One is that the disciples stole the body. One is that he didn't really die, he just swooned. And one is that all the disciples had a mass hallucination and made the whole thing up accidentally. Now, if you are a person of any reason or logic, you can very quickly perceive what dumb ideas these are. How does a stolen body Convince Saul of Tarshish, persecutor of the church, murderer of Christians to suddenly turn on a dime and become a Christian. It's weakened at Bernie's with Jesus. It's not going to work. How on earth does a swooned Jesus actually escape from a tomb when the Roman guard is in charge and they will be killed if they let him escape? What he crawls to the upper room, knocks on the door and says, I'm alive. And they believe him and they all go die for him. I don't think so. And a mass hallucination is something that any psychologist can tell you doesn't exist without drugs and someone else leading the mass hallucination. It's all nonsense. Meanwhile, you have other things that happen that are, that are unexplainable. One of the most unexplainable things is how 2,000 plus Jews start worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday. This is half the reason they killed Jesus. It's because he did too much stuff on Saturday. He wouldn't give up the Sabbath. And yet here you have this horde of Jews suddenly worshiping on the first day of the week, and they're saying it's because he rose from the dead, and there's the empty tomb right over there. Atheists explain that with history, not with scoffing, with history. And you'll find there only is one explanation. The guy actually showed up alive. Now, again, this is the apologetic, the defense of the resurrection. If you go and test it, it is the most confirmable ancient history that it is, that you can find. There are no, we have more eyewitnesses. We have more writings. We have more confirmation than any other piece of ancient history. You want to talk about Julius Caesar? We cannot prove his life nearly the way that we can prove Jesus' life. So really it comes down to what Anthony Flew, a very famous atheist, said, I just can't believe it, even though it obviously looks like it's true. You come down to the stubbornness of heart. And that then is the matter of the big fish. It's ultimately a matter of the stubbornness of heart. That you just don't want to believe, because believing that Jesus is risen from the dead would require you to repent, recognize the evils of this world and your life, and amend it to be in line with what God has said life should be. Now, we'll come back to some of that, but let us dive back over to verse 17 in Jonah chapter one. And let me give you the word you should really focus on, which is not the fish. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That word appointed is a powerful and unique word. It is like unto created. It's not the same word as created, but is very close to creation. It is a miraculous word. It is not a natural word. So when you read this story in the Hebrew, it is clear this fish came out of nowhere. Could it actually be one of those big fish that exists that God moved over to swallow Jonah? Sure. And if we got to ask that question in heaven and have him tell us which one, fine. But how about we just accept the fact that if God wants to make a fish to swallow Jonah and put an easy chair and a fireplace and a steak dinner in the belly, then he can do that. He can do that. I don't think that's what happened. I think it kind of was annoying to be in the belly of the fish, but he certainly was able to breathe somehow. He certainly was able to stay alive and, and he himself believed it was salvation. That is when he was down in the water and the waves were breaking over him and he was being crushed by this storm. You can imagine how the waters of the ocean can crush even a submarine deep down in the water. That's how great the pressure gets. He's down in that and he's thinking, I'm already in hell. I'm already in destruction. And he prays to God. This fish comes along and swallows him as salvation from the sea. Now, I can tell you that's what actually happened because of chapter 2. Notice how he prays, chapter 2, verse 1, from the belly of the fish. And the first thing he says, verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered, past tense, me. In his destruction, he realized he had fought against God and lost. He repented, called out the name of God, and was answered by this big fish. Mm. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, past tense, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, I shall look again upon your holy temple. I love that. He prays in the name of his circumcision. He prays in the name of his being a Jew. He remembers who his God really is and he knows the resurrection of the dead is going to come for him someday. Even as, verse five, the waters closed over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever forever. That's Tartarus, that's Hades, that's the abode of the dead. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He's in the fish, but he's resurrected. Think of the ark of Noah going through the sea. Same kind of idea. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered Jesus Christ. Remember how I emphasized this to you when you pray the Psalms. When you pray the Psalms, the prayers that Jesus prayed, When you come upon the Lord, the word the Lord, say, for your sake, Jesus Christ. Remember that the message of the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, Jesus Christ is this God of the Old Testament for you. Mm. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered Jesus Christ. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to Jesus Christ. Verse 10 of chapter 2. And the Lord Jesus spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. And that brings us to the place of our reading. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip that place for a moment. We're going to come back to chapter 3 after chapter 4. And to review, he gets the word of the Lord again. Same message. Okay, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city. Preach to them. Uh, tell them that the evil they're doing, I won't put up with anymore. And amazingly, it is a miracle in its own right. The people of Nineveh believe and they repent. Now, As an aside here, I should point out, I don't know specifically what the sins were that had caused God to become so angry he was going to destroy Nineveh. I can tell you that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were the turning upside down of human sexuality and the desire to abuse and use other humans as sexual objects. And I can tell you that the other sin that is most common to the ancient world is the murder and killing of children as human sacrifice. That is, the seeing of babes and infants as something to be used for our own good. Now, I don't know if that's what they were doing, but I can tell you, I'll show you at the end of the book, it is the children of Nineveh that God is most concerned with. We'll come back to that. But first... I want to go on and see how, after they do repent, after they go out and put sackcloth on their cows. I mean, can you imagine? Sackcloth on their cows. God relents. Jonah chapter four will have a problem with this. See chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to Jesus and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Remember how I said this at the start of the sermon? It wasn't because he was afraid they wouldn't listen. It was afraid he was afraid they would. It's incredible. He goes on, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, (laughs) as a Lutheran pastor, I can tell you, I really want people to believe what I say. Like it's been something that I'm constantly banging my head against and wishing for more of. I think every pastor out there wants people to repent and believe. Jonah didn't. He wanted them to not repent and be destroyed. What a strange thing. So much so that he'd rather be dead then see them live. That's how much he hated these people. Now, perhaps he knew what they'd been doing. If you can imagine the worst thing that's being done now, can I describe to you the two babies that are kept alive as kidneys in petri dishes to be tested on by various companies in America? That's a pretty awful thing. I actually want that to stop. And honestly, if people get their own what, problem from it? If the men who did that find themselves in hell someday, they will get what they deserve. But the danger is, and you know this verse, the danger is the log in my eye. Even though the speck is actually in my brother's eye, even though he actually is wrong, the danger is that in me seeing he's wrong, I think I am by myself right. And this is where Jonah's problem is. So the Lord asked this question in verse four. And the Lord asked or said, Do you do well to be angry? Now there's more story that's going to say what happens after that. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's holding out hope that fire will come down out of heaven. Hmm. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed, same word as the fish, miracle, Miracle, same word as the fish. God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, this doesn't get all the news stories in the documentaries to focus in on it, but this miraculous plant is as much as the miraculous fish. It grows up in one night. It totally covers him with shade. And he's actually like, oh, good. I like this. This this is what I want. hmm?" He's glad for the plant. Verse seven, but when dawn came the next day, God appointed, same word as the fish and the plant, a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So God kills the plant. He just He kills it. When the sun rose, God appointed, oh, there it is again. God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die. And he still wants to die. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. Hmm. But God said, verse nine, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And I'll confess, I like Jonah's answer. I really do here because I know what it's like to be so mad that you just talk anyway. And you say something that really later you're like, uh, probably shouldn't have said that. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. Hmm. And the Lord, I turned too many pages. Verse 10, and the Lord said, this is key. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And remember, they have the cattle repent, they put the sackcloth on the cattle, and God actually cares. It's not so much that the cattle have to repent themselves. The point is, God is interested in more than just you. He's interested in you. But he's interested in more than just you, in more than just you, plural, in more than just us, humanity. He loves all of his creation and he does not enjoy seeing it suffer. As Romans 8 will teach us, it is submitted to the futility of death in order that it might be unleashed from that death on the day of his return when the sons of God, that's you and me, are raised from the dead. And you see that here with his concern for the cattle. But now let's back up to this 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. When you run into these scoffing scholars who don't like to believe in the big fish, one of the other things they'll complain about is that there were more than 120,000 people in Nineveh at this time. And yet, if you look at the size of Nineveh, if you walk straight across it, it's less than three days journey. Remember in chapter three, it says it takes three days to go through Nineveh. It's less than three days journey, but it's bigger than 120,000 people. Now I'm going to point out again, this is just stubbornness. This is just a desire to find a reason not to believe because there are plenty of solutions to most of these problems if you dig for them a little bit. And, and here's a very simple one. I mean, how many of you raise a hand if you do not know you're right from your left? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, which hand are you raising, right? Uh, how, who are the people in the world that actually don't know they're right from their left? There are people who don't know they're right from their left. They're usually like under five. Well, that's about how many children would have been in the city at the time. That's who he cares about. So why would he not, having sent a preacher to stop that people from killing them in their own fires as sacrifices, then no longer kill them and actually save also the people who repented? Why would he not do that? So there's your answer to the 120,000. And there again, you see how much God desires to save all now, to answer the question about three days journey, it doesn't say in the Hebrew, three days straight across. It just says three days through the city. And there's a number of ways you can look at it. But for me, my favorite example is to remember the first time I went to the March for Life in Washington, D.C., where you go from, I can't even tell you where, the Great Plaza all the way up past the courthouses, and you end up in front of Congress. And there's this massive crowds or there used to be before they canceled it two years ago for... Reasons, Um, but massive crowds. So as you're marching and the snow is falling, you're moving about like this, miles, like this. Took a long time, five, six hours, something like that. So imagine now a great city filled with trade from all over. One of the greatest empires there has ever been, an empire that lasted longer than and was as influential as the Roman Empire. So within this city, as people go in the main causeways, are they moving fast? No, Are they, and then add to that, does Jonah go straight through it or can he wander among the streets looking for a good place to preach? Yes, so it's really not hard to find solutions to the skepticism if you want. The focal point should rather be, you know, all these answers our poor modern minds need. The focal point again is to learn what Jonah had to learn, which is that God has a zeal to save, Period. A zeal to save, period. And so he sends his word in order to wake us up and to call us back to that salvation. For that, I want you to keep a mark in Jonah at chapter 3. We're going to come back and finish with chapter 3. But I want you to turn over to page 1132 to look at that First Corinthians text that we heard read a little while ago. We're going to start at verse 9, which is where we started. As you get there, page 1,132. I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's my large print Bible. Page 953. Page 953. Um, As you turn there, the context of this paragraph is that the people in Corinth have received a new preacher. His name is Apollos, and he's pretty entertaining. Everybody likes listening to him. But as a result of that, some of them are beginning to say, Anything Paul says doesn't matter anymore. We don't have to listen to Paul anymore. And they begin pitting the preachers against each other, which is really problematic. Paul is then emphasizing how it doesn't matter who preaches the word, who plants the seed, who waters. It's God and the word of Jesus that gives the growth, right? And so now verse nine says, we, that's him and Apollos, are God's fellow workers, you all plural, that's the church, are God's field. he have been using this planting, watering, growing imagery. He's shifting now from field to God's building, God's temple. And he says in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Remember, Paul planted the church in Corinth. He started it there. He laid the foundation of the building. And now someone else, Apollos, is building upon it. Now, here's where we got to think about repentance a little bit today. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. First point, when you repent, go back to the roots. Go back to the reality. He He is risen. Alleluia. Jesus Christ is God. And his reign, his kingdom, his word will endure forever. It is possible to be wrong and still be saved. It is possible to be a sinner and still be saved. It is possible to fall away and still be saved. But it only happens because you are saved by the foundation, the rock that shall never split Jesus Christ himself. But see what he says next in verse 12. While you're building this life, things do change, right? Verse 12, now, if anyone builds on the foundation, that's Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day, this judgment day, we'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Remember how last week in the book of Philippians, Paul told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Remember how this is not to say, save yourself or you're not saved by grace. This is to say, now that you know you're saved by grace, and now that you know what you're saved from, touch good, not evil. Flee from evil, flee to the good. If you're gonna build your life on something, build it on what you know to be true. This is why the emphasis this year is to take these things home to open your Bible at home and read these words again because that is to build with the gold and the precious stones. To go home and worry about all the other stories of the world and try to build your life on it. Or worse, what the Christian church has often done for the last 50 years, which is to try to save the church by either politics or business techniques, is to build with straw. And when the fire comes, it will reveal those things to have been worthless in the end. Now, Does that mean we should never organize? No. Does that mean you should never be in your politics? No. It means don't mistake them for repentance. And don't mistake them for the weapons of our warfare against powers and principalities of the present darkness. The weapon of your warfare is the word of God. And as I've been emphasizing, the easiest way to get into that is to open your psalms. Open your psalms and start praying them. Psalm 1 at night. Psalm 23 in the morning. And let me give you two more to add to that list. Very appropriate for this year. Psalm 43 and Psalm 44. If you can't do them both, take 43. It's short. It's this long. Take it three minutes or less. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, against an ungodly nation. It's a prayer that evil rulers would not have their way. And frankly, we should pray this prayer even when we have good rulers. Because if you stop praying for your good rulers, you get evil rulers. I can test maybe that's what's happened. Psalm 44, I love. Psalm 44 is about how we know God always saves us, but it doesn't look like he's saving us. So what's up with that, God? I love it. It's great. I pray it every day because really, that's what it feels like to me right now. I know he saves us. We've not stopped having word and sacrament. We've not stopped calling out in his name. So what's up with that? Why does it look like we're losing? It says, why are we a byword among the nations? You know how you're ashamed to say you're a Christian because it feels shameful to say it? Why is that? The psalm asks it. Why is that? Psalm 43 and 44, go back to the gold. Build with the gold because that will endure. Verse 16 in chapter three, this is what we heard read before. Because do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What you will find when you begin praying the psalms is that God's spirit dwells in you. You'll be like, I don't want to open the Bible right now. It's too hard. I don't have time. And you'll open it and you'll spend however much time in it. And you'll be like, oh, it was kind of good. And then the next day you'll be like, I don't want to open the Bible right now. Oh, I feel so tired. Maybe I'll turn on the TV instead. But if you open the Psalter, you'll be like, oh, well, that feels kind of good. See, The spirit of God is in you and, and he will know it when the word goes in. So, so do it, open it. Do you not know the Spirit dwells in you? Verse 17, again, this is hope for us. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. If you're worried about the present age, if you're worried about this, that, or the other thing out there in the news cycle and how it's bad for this and bad for this, and I'll put my hand in the air. I'm as worried as the day is long about a million things. But I know this, that anyone who seeks to destroy me as a Christian, God will destroy him especially if he attacks my Christianity. If I lose my life and something that I have not seen coming is taken from me because I stand as a Christian, I will receive back 100-fold in the life of the world to come. That's not just me. That's you. That's all of us. That's every Christian in every place. So what does that mean? It means go out and fight without fear. It means go out and stand on what you know to be true. It means understand that God is zealous for you. Let's flip back to Jonah chapter three to bring this thing to a close here this morning. Jonah chapter three, that's page nine. I don't wanna say the wrong one again. Uh, That's page 821 for y'all. We're not gonna look at all of it, but remember then the preaching of repentance, which is what I'm doing to you. I'm saying to you, American Christianity and you St. Paul Lutheran Church, we've stopped praying. We as a whole have stopped praying. And then it got really, really bad. Let's pray some more. Let's go back to the words that we know God answers. Let's lift them up to him. That's what Nineveh did, and they weren't even Christians. They're just pagans. Now, look at what the king does. Verse 6 of chapter 3. This is repentance. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. It's a fast, right? So he fasted. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let everyone call out mightily to God, not to his God, to the true God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And there's a lot of different actions he takes there, but you can sum them all up in this. Repentance is physical. Repentance involves your body. It means doing something based on what you've come to know. And now, I mean, this is just a fact. I don't know what you know. I don't know what you think. For many of you, even though you're here every week, I don't know what you believe because there's so much information out there. Just go to the Christian bookstore. There's plenty of lies, let alone everywhere else. So I don't know what you need to repent of, but I do know that we need to embrace a spirit of repentance. And it involves everyone from the top to the bottom slowing down enough to think about it slowing down enough to say, I've been going the wrong way. Now, I'll, I'll just be real honest with you and confess. I know what I needed to repent of most in my life. In the last two years made it very, very clear to me is I was spending too much time playing video games and watching television when I should have been just reading the Bible and caring about you and caring about my family. And I know what that was doing to my kids. They were growing up thinking that we should spend time playing video games and watching the television. And what they were not doing was reading the Bible. Now, have we turned this all around? Are we a perfect family? No, no, not at all. But I do repent. And I, I will continue to believe that I need to set a better example for my people in my house yeah? and then for you as well. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be like me exactly, but it does mean this, consider where your time goes. Because that's what the demons want. It's for you to waste your time on worthless things. And think then about, again, Philippians last week, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, dwell on these things. So for us here at St. Paul, what do I want? You know what I want. I want you to go home and read the Bible at least once this week. At least once, preferably every day though. I want you to get those Psalms 1, 23, 43 and 44 to come out of your mouth out loud every day, this week. I believe that God hears such things. Who knows? Maybe he will relent. Who knows? Maybe he'll take it back and we'll be just like it was before 2020 or we can all think America's great again. It seems like a tall order to me, but I'll tell you, I would rather that happen. It is what I want. I want a nice, peaceful, quiet life like I remember having back in 1984. I don't know, know. What I want more than that though What I want more is to contain and remember this faith which has been inflamed. What I want is to know for certain that my God is zealous for my salvation so much that he will take away what I love in order to remind me of my first love, which is him. And I want all of us to believe in that because whatever the future holds, whether he is going to return today or many years from now, the hope for our children. And the hope for their faith rests on our faith being in things that last forever, in the gold of Jesus Christ himself. Yes, he is risen. risen. Alleluia, final thought, the temple of his body now given for you to eat and drink under bread and wine to make you plural, the temple of his body in this age, the church, light, not darkness, salt for the sake of the earth, confident that your king reigns in the name of Jesus.